The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. A big problem that we see in current guidelines is that there isn't a strong evidence base for many of the recommendations that that are made. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled The Future of Medical Guidelines, Standardizing Clinical Care with the Humility of Uncertainty, appearing in the November issue of uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine. Joining me on the podcast are two of the authors, Dr. Brad Spellberg, who's Chief Medical Officer at L.A. County University of Southern California Medical Center. He's Professor of Clinical Medicine and Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Dr. Shaneyfeld is Professor of Medicine at UAB. His teaching interests focus around evaluating and applying evidence in clinical practice. He's the author of the classic paper, Our Guidelines Following Guidelines, The Methodological Quality of Clinical Practice guidelines in the peer-reviewed medical literature. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Terry and Brad, for uh, joining us on this podcast. Obviously, the three of us are uh, co-authors on this paper, and the whole history of guidelines in this country is fraught with great expectations and unintended side effects. I think that if each of us sort of tells our own personal story about our awakening, about concerns about guidelines, that may frame the rationale for why we wanted to write the paper the way we did. So, Terry, you have the longest history here in studying guidelines. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So for me, my interest in guidelines uh, happened when I was a general medicine fellow, and I did a large critical appraisal project to see how good guidelines were following the science at the time of their development, and looked at almost 300 guidelines and found that they weren't very good. They met less than half of the criteria that were deemed at the time to be um, important ways to develop guidelines. And so that for me was an important thing because guidelines even back then, were important documents for shaping care, and we found that they just weren't very good. Very varied methods, and sometimes no methods at all were used to develop them. So um, that was a an eye-awakening moment, and interestingly, that study was repeated a decade later by another group and found the exact same thing. Less than half of the criteria for developing guidelines were met by more contemporary guidelines. So that's how I got involved in all this and became critical of guidelines. Brad? Yeah, I mean, the first shock to my system was when I was a resident back in the Cretaceous era, that during our continuity clinics, you know, we were taught to treat postmenopausal women with hormone replacement therapy to reduce breast cancer risk and to prevent coronary artery disease. And then I graduated residency, became an ID fellow, 
And during my fellowship, a randomized controlled trial was published, the giant women's health initiative randomized controlled trial was published that showed that doing what we were doing did exactly the opposite, promoted breast cancer and promoted coronary artery disease. And I'm like, wait, how could we have gotten that so terribly wrong and with certainty in guidelines? And I've had numerous other similar examples since then, but one of the more pointed, I guess, was about a decade later when I was an inpatient director at my hospital, my prior hospital, one of my responsibilities was to review all the Oryx core measure fallouts for inpatient publicly reported data measures. And we had a fallout of a patient who was admitted to the ICU for severe community-acquired pneumonia who was beta-lactam allergic. And they got Vanco and some other drug, I don't even remember what it was. But the core measure nurse dropped us on the measure because that's not what the guidelines said to use. So I called the nurse at the state level and I'm like, look, I'm protesting this. This as an ID doctor seems like a very reasonable regimen. And they said, no, the guidelines say you should use as Trianam for this patient. And I'm like, as Trianam, that's gram negative only coverage. We're talking about community acquired pneumonia. What are you talking about? Why would anyone do that? So I looked in the guidelines and sure enough, the guideline said for beta-lactam allergic patients going to the ICU at that time, they said, use as Trianam. So I emailed three of the guidelines authors. The first author I emailed said, I don't remember saying that at all. The second author said, I definitely wouldn't use as Trianam. And the third author who was the first author on the guidelines, the third person I emailed, first author on the guidelines said, you know, we ran out of time at the meeting before we had a chance to discuss that table, so it never got vetted. And I'm like, but you set a medical legal standard of care, and public regulators are now punishing us for not meeting it. And I'm like, wow, guidelines need to be completely rethought. So for me, in 07, a Belgian physician, Jan Mathis, I hope I didn't butcher his name, published 12 sore throat guidelines that divided up into three general categories. One was test people who had scores of three or four, and if they're positive for strep, give them antibiotics. Then there are a couple that said empirically treat threes and fours. And then there's one that says don't test or treat anybody because sore throats aren't that important. And they all pretty much looked at the same data And it reminded me of uh, a Nietzsche quote, which is, there are no data, only interpretations. This only got worse when I read the negative impact of the four-hour pneumonia rule that we had to put up with. I I think it was uh, somewhere in the 05 to 10 range. I don't remember exactly when it was. But if patients didn't get antibiotics soon enough, then the hospital got dinged. And then there's all these wonderful articles, first about how many people got antibiotics who had a cold, and then the second on how flawed the original analysis of a retrospective study was that led to that four-hour rule. And the sad thing is now almost everybody who might possibly have pneumonia gets antibiotics in the ER before we can even sit down and think about them. And uh, so one of my favorite things to talk about on rounds is the ER diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, which has about a 30% chance of being something else. And as you've (laughs) talked about, Bob, that this has continued with the SET1 measure in Medicare for early goal-directed therapy 
that you've already done podcasts on that is dead wrong, but we're stuck with a national measure that Medicare is forcing us to comply with that we now know is wrong. So Terry, you've really studied the methodology and you're very involved in evidence-based medicine. What are the big problems that guideline developers overlook, the techniques that they should be using that they're not using that lead to these types of problems? I think there are a couple of, and I would say three big areas of problems with guideline development that we identified. And I'll leave perhaps the most important one to the end, but number one is having a diverse development group. So you want every specialty that might take care of a patient with that particular problem to be represented on the guideline panel. And as we've documented, many guideline panels are single specialty entities. So you get no input from anybody else. You might have to take care of that person. Another problem is conflicts of interest, which is a a whole nother topic in and of itself. But we often think of financial ones, but the other one that people need to remember is intellectual conflicts of interest. So, you know, whatever specialty we are, whatever sort of um, ideas we have shape our interpretations of the data, as you mentioned just a minute ago. And I think a, a big one, which we'll probably focus on more for the remainder of this podcast, is thinking about what is the evidence base upon which those recommendations are made. And the Institute of Medicine decades ago uh, had criteria for what should be made into a guideline. And one of the criteria was that you had to have a solid evidence base upon which to base your recommendations to call something a guideline. And I think that's a a big problem that we see in current guidelines is that there isn't a strong evidence base for many of the recommendations that that are made. And we've alluded to some of that already to this point. So there are studies that I'm aware of both uh, in the cardiology literature, looking at guidelines and infectious disease literature, a couple of times looking at guidelines or about half the guidelines don't have a good evidence base. Brad, what are the unintended consequences of saying something is a guideline when it's really just an expert opinion? Guideline authors typically include language in the guidelines that say, oh, this is not intended to set a standard of care, but it does. Whether guideline authors want it to or not, guidelines create medical legal standards of care. Lawyers use them to sue physicians uh, and hospitals. Hospital regulators like Joint Commission use them to survey hospitals for compliance with care standards. Payers, whether it's Medicare as a public payer or health insurance companies as a private payer, will use them to determine what care will they pay for, what will they reimburse, and what will they not. So whether people want it to happen or not, when you publish a guideline, and as Terry alluded to, you call it a guideline recommendation, it sets a standard of care that forces compliance. And if it's wrong, and we later learn it's wrong, you are therefore compelling incorrect care that is either harmful, wasteful, or both. I think two great examples of this were the... uh four-hour rule that we mentioned before, and the sepsis guideline. And the sepsis guideline, not only might it harm people because uh, they get labeled as sepsis and people don't figure out the real reasons that, that they're in shock or the, that uh, they have a high lactate, and collecting the data for the pay for performance associated with those things is a huge cost to hospitals. I mean, you have to hire dozens of people and keep all kinds of paperwork. And so these unintended consequences are harm to the patient and 
financial harm to the system. We give in the paper, as you know, multiple examples of incorrect guideline recommendations that were subsequently proven incorrect by prospective studies that were harmful. And that's not even an exhaustive list. That's just what we came up with off the top of our heads. And it includes things very much like Terry alluded to this, this intellectual conflict of interest. One person has done some retrospective studies and they feel very strongly that those studies are right. So they sort of bully the guidelines panel into making a recommendation that is aligned with that finding without replicated prospective studies to validate it. Most important word in the title of our paper is humility. And humility is knowing exactly how good you are and knowing exactly where you're not quite as good. And so as we discuss our recommendations, I think the, the key thought process philosophically is don't call something a guideline unless you're really darn sure that you have really good data. And so how do we get around that? So Brad, maybe you can, you can go through these and Terry, you can comment. Absolutely. I, I guess I'll start by saying the experts that I respect the most are those that are honest when they don't know for sure. They tell you what they think. Remember Osler's quote, 50% of everything I'm teaching you is wrong. I just don't know which 50%, right? That's humility. Being certain, acting certain about stuff you're not certain about, that is really not acting like a real expert. So what we recommend is point one to Terry's initial point of problems, you need a diverse guidelines panel. The people that deliver most of the care in the world are primary physicians, whether it's primary care physicians in the outpatient setting or hospitalists in the inpatient setting. And Lord knows, because all three of us do hospital medicine, we all the time get specialists that give us conflicting recommendations. I mean, you could just mention nephrologists and cardiologists as one example that frequently conflict, right? And we have to incorporate all of the recommendations to make a holistic plan for the patient. If you just take one specialty's perspective, you're not taking into consideration what is best for the patient as a whole. So that's point one. Do not make a recommendation unless there is high quality data. And we've suggested an example of high quality data is replicated controlled prospective studies. Even one prospective study probably isn't enough because there are examples like with early goal-directed therapy where one prospective study was wrong. So replicated controlled prospective studies should lead to recommendations. If you don't meet that level of evidence, don't make a clear recommendation. And instead, because you still want to offer guidance, instead, market differently, clinical review, consensus opinion, and be honest that we don't know. Here's what we think. Here's the retrospective observational data. Here's the pros and cons of one approach. Here's the pros and cons of another approach. Talk it through to give physicians options and explain the benefit and harms of those options without constraining them in the absence of high quality data. And then the final point is you have to update this regularly because data changes, studies come out. And especially if we were wrong before, if we take a decade to update, we have a care mandate that's gonna last a decade causing harmful care for that decade. I don't know that I have much to add to that. Um, I think those are all the, the, the key points. And I've been on some guideline panels and it's never very explicit, but there's always this, this tendency of guideline panels to want to make a recommendation for every single aspect of the care of that guideline. And I think at some point, hopefully guideline developers 
need to get to a point to say it's okay that we don't make a recommendation for every single aspect of care of this disorder um, for which there isn't data. We can just, we can, we, we, it's okay to leave it alone. And I think if we can get to that point where they don't feel compelled to make 700 recommendations and a guideline that nobody can follow all of them and read all of them, um, I think we'll have made significant headway and, you know, recognizing the limitations in the data and then stopping at that point. Um, and again, you can, like Brad mentioned, you can call it a consensus statement or whatever you want to. Just don't label it a guideline. Don't put it in those guideline recommendations. And I don't care if you have a fancy table that, you know, this is level to this, whatever you want to grade your data and then grade a recommendation. It still just, I think, obscures the fact that you have limited data uh, for an individual area and just should not make a recommendation. Well, let me just finish by echoing what you just said, Terry. ACP guideline committee usually only has two, three, or four recommendations when they do a guideline on something. Some of the subspecialty society ones uh, could drive you crazy trying to figure out all the different nuances they're trying to get to, most of which don't have randomized controlled data. And so I think parsimony might be the word that is not being used uh, by these guideline committees. And that may be why they make the types of errors that Brad mentioned before with the ASHTREE&AM is they tried to cover too many situations. I can't thank you enough both for uh, the co-authorship that we had on writing this and for your contributions to this podcast. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks very much, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The underlying philosophy of this paper is that labeling a recommendation as a guideline has many unintended consequences uh, that we discussed in this podcast. Therefore, we should only use that label when we have excellent data that is supported with multiple studies. Otherwise, we should present the pros and cons of our recommendations with the humility of uncertainty giving the readers the opportunity to use clinical judgment based upon the pros and cons of the less than perfect data that we have to make those decisions. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.